So for the last two weeks, we've been talking about how suffering is a battle for faith. We've talked about practical things we can do when we find ourselves hurting. And last week, Will talked about what we can do to encourage others in their fight of faith as well. Now, if you remember, one of the things we looked at was the ministry of hospitality, a way to serve others that includes helping out with the practical needs um, of those people, like food, clothing, shelter, friendship, things like that. So why is that important? Well, for one, we realize that our spiritual life is not disconnected from the physical, right? So we don't have a sort of category over here for our spirituality to the absolute neglect of our physical needs, right? So things like stress or being exhausted or being overly anxious, not eating well, not having some type of exercise can make it hard to think clearly and to trust God. And I think this is something that we all recognize. You know, if you go three days without sleep and you're living off of Red Bulls and candy bars, then your time of devotion is probably not going to be as focused. You're going to be distracted by your own body, right? So it's important for us to keep those things in mind as well. And that happens, that sort of being distracted by a lack of sleep and maybe not eating or whatnot, um, that happens because we haven't given our bodies what it needs in order for our minds to engage uh, clearly, right? So yes, we're Christians, we're we're believers, we believe deeply in um, one's spirituality and one's union with Christ, but we don't neglect our physical needs. And so we should give thought to also the physical needs of others or how we may be able to help them in that way. So there's a connection again between the physical life and our spirituality. Now, part of the way we help other Christians fight for faith is through helping out with uh, their practical needs and, and or giving them wisdom that might help them with those practical needs. Now, if that's true, it does raise some questions. For instance, if we do like a quick assessment of our uh, family and friends and we think about all their needs, those needs start to get to a point where you feel like, well, this is too much for me. It's a, it's a, a big pile of needs. It's, it's a lot of help that's needed. <clears throat> and then outside of our own family and friends, if you just turn on the news, right, for 10 minutes, you'll see um, all the other needs in the world. Right, those spiritual needs, but also those physical needs where there is suffering and there is uh, starvation and there is, um, you know, different types of afflictions. This happens all the time. This is the headliner of the news, right? <clears throat> and so we can think through how we can um, help people in those physical needs, but that's what this class is sort of going to talk about. What does that look like for the Christian who desires to help? And we want to look at the Bible and get biblical wisdom on what that looks like for us. So we can look at suffering around us and we can throw up our hands and we can say, well, that's too much for any one man to take on. So we just sort of put it to the side or ignore it. Or on the other end, we could say, well, let let me do all, all the things that I see happening. Let me 
do something about all of them, right? And that's not wise either. So we don't want to fall in either ditch on the sides of that road of wanting to help. Because <clears throat> both, both of those are unwise and unrealistic. Now, what we need is a biblical perspective on the relief of physical suffering. And to do that, we're going to look at it in three principles, which you'll probably see in your handout there. The first principle is love as the posture or position of a Christian. The second principle is the moral proximity principle. And the third principle is the priority of need principle. So the posture of the Christian, moral proximity, and the priority of need. Now, all three of these are important, and hopefully they'll give us a better practical handle on how to help people who are burdened and suffering, and how to use our time, energy, and resources to do that. Now, in light of our short time together this morning, this isn't supposed to be an exhaustive study on every nuance or circumstance that we come across for those who are suffering. But hopefully it'll, again, give us a practical way to approach these needs with some scriptural foundations behind them or some principles from scripture behind them. Okay, so the first principle, love is the posture of a Christian. The parable of the Good Samaritan is probably uh, one of the most well-known parables or parts of scripture for almost all of us. In Luke 10, Jesus tells a story of a Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's attacked by robbers. Right, so they take his clothes, they strip him, they beat him, and leave him for dead, essentially. And as he lay there, three men passed by. The first two were religious leaders in Israel who turned their head and passed by on the other side. And the third was a Samaritan, a group of people that the Jews hated who ended up, who was the only one to actually end up stopping to help. Now the basic point of the parable is, go and do likewise, Luke 10, 31. The reason Jesus told this parable in the first place was in response to a lawyer who had asked about how to inherit eternal life. When Jesus told him to love God and neighbor, the lawyer asked, well, who is my neighbor? Basically, he was trying to water down the definition of neighbor so that he could say, well, I fulfilled that. I fulfilled the law and justify himself before God. But Jesus' parable wasn't what the lawyer thought it was. He is, and we are too, forced to face this reality that the very thing that this lawyer was unable to do, but was required to do, is to inherit eternal life and he has failed to do that. In fact, he can't do it on his own. And why? Because Jesus is teaching that we are called to love not just those who are easy to love, but anyone and everyone as we have opportunity, right? Now, I think it can be easy for us to read Luke 10 and assume that loving this way, the way this Samaritan loved, is not what Jesus meant. Right, so we say there's got to be some catch to this. There's got to be some condition that will lighten the load so we can sort of skip over this and think that it doesn't apply to us. We don't sort of sit with it and think about it. But we need to let this sink in a little bit because Jesus is saying this is how we should love. As followers of Christ, this should be our disposition 
as we walk the streets in Orlando, hear about suffering overseas, and especially when it comes to the needs of our own church family. And that's what we want to think through. So like the lawyer in Luke 10, we have to realize that we cannot justify ourselves before God. Right? Matthew 23, 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, <clears throat> scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's not pitting one against the other. He says these you ought to have done without the neglect of those others. Now, I think we at times can be a sort of reactionistic culture, right? We're most zealous for the things that other people have either misinterpreted or neglected. Those are the things that become sort of our hobby horses. We hear the words like justice and mercy and we automatically think of social justice people. And when we react to those abuses, or rather we then react to those abuses of those biblical principles and then fall in the ditch of neglecting them, right? And our response not to, we don't wanna look like them, we don't wanna define it like them, and so we just sort of put it to the side without thinking through it. But those are biblical principles. Even though the abuses may be there, the principles um, we should not neglect as we see them in scripture. God has shown mercy. He has shown covenant faithfulness at the cost of his only begotten son. And he has executed justice to justify us. So let's not be like the Pharisees, right? Scribes, hypocrites here. Knowing God's love for us should move us to love without trying to corner Jesus by saying, well, who is my neighbor, right? It's one thing to ask that question and to ask it so that we can genuinely consider what the scriptures are saying. We interpret them properly to know how we can love our neighbors. But it's another thing to ask that question, well, who is my neighbor? So that we can sort of get out of it and just say, well, I don't know who my neighbor is. I don't know what that means. And we just sort of look over that scripture, right? We want to be biblically informed Christians, not just reactionistic, but we want to actually uphold what the scripture is saying and do it in the right way, right? So let's think through this a little more. So let's jump down to principle number two, which is moral proximity, the moral proximity principle. So again, we're thinking about how do we as Christians um, think through how to serve those who are burdened and suffering, right? From near to far. What does that look like? So in order to think carefully about the relief of physical suffering in this world, it's helpful to understand this principle of moral proximity. So what is that? The moral proximity principle. It says the closer the moral proximity of the need, the greater the moral obligation to help. Moral proximity doesn't only refer to geography, although that's part of the equation. Moral proximity refers to how connected we are to someone by virtue of familiarity, kinship, space, or time. Now this principle is drawn from a book by Kevin D. Young and Greg Gilbert called What is the Mission of the Church? Making Sense of Social Justice, uh, Suffering, and Shalom. Now I would highly, highly recommend this book 
the elders at the church here went through it last year, beginning of last year, as we were thinking through um, how the church should engage with these big questions in the culture. Because there is this sort of shift, and I'll talk about this a little bit, this shift towards um, questioning, okay, what was the priority of Jesus' ministry? Was it preaching or was it meeting physical needs, right? That, that becomes the question that everybody's thinking through again. Um, but the Bible is clear. And this book is really helpful. And it walks through scripture, Old and New Testament, thinking through, um, trying to interpret the scripture properly. And it also brings out a lot of practical ways to think through this. So again, that was what is the mission of the church? Making sense of social justice, suffering, and shalom, I think is the subtitle there. Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung. <clears throat> And so, continuing to think through this principle, what that means is that moral proximity principle, <clears throat> that means that a stranger could come up to me, let's say in Orlando, and tell me that he lost his job and needs money. Now, giving money to him may be a good thing to do. It may be. But if my brother-in-law who lives in Chicago loses his job, I have more of an obligation to help him. Now, if you're a parent, this moral proximity principle, I think, is probably maybe easier for you to grasp, or this illustration may make it a little easier for you for us to, to think through. So imagine uh, you come to the church and you check your uh, children into the children's ministry, right, for the um, Sunday school. You check them in, and as we're here in Sunday school, uh, you uh, a fire breaks out in the back. When you go to the back, what's the first person you're thinking about grabbing from the back? It's probably your own child. That's not because you don't love the other children or that you don't think they need to be saved, but you have a moral proximity and obligation to that child as the Lord has given him to you. So you have a unique responsibility to that, to your own child, right? Now again, moral proximity doesn't mean that we should only care for our friends or our family or people across the street. But, and this is sort of the key to this principle, it means that we ought to do in one situation what we may or may not do in another. One situation we, we could, it might be good, in another situation, we actually ought to do it. We, we must do it. And we'll, again, talk about this a little more. So moral proximity makes obedience possible by reminding us that Paul says, let us do good to everyone, he said, so then as we have opportunity. Let us do good to everyone as we have opportunity. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, this isn't something that's um, always easy to work through. There are a lot of different variables and factors that should be considered. And not to overcomplicate it, that, that's not why we want to think through all these different things, but we actually want to be wise with our resources, our time, and our energy. And this isn't always something that's easy to navigate through. It can be very complex and complicated. But I want to think about another scenario that hopefully can give some, some feet to this. Let's say we have, a, if we have a lazy family member right, who lives across the street 
And that family member is always asking for money. They always need help in the same area over and over. And let's say we have a hardworking friend of ours who's willing to work, who lives in Baltimore, and he asks for money. You might be more willing to give that help to your friend in Baltimore over your family who lives across the street. Now, some people will react to that and say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's your family. They are always of first importance and priority, no matter the circumstance, the situation, what they're dealing with, always first and foremost. I would push back against that and say, well, no, not always. So we, we want to think through some more biblical principles that could help us in, let's say, a, a, a situation like that. Now, that friend in Baltimore, it may even be harder to get that money to him, but you may determine that it's actually better or wiser in the best use of your money, your time, and your resources. And you're not sinning in doing that. You're actually trying to apply other biblical principles to help you think through that. And it may be more loving, you, more loving for you not to give that money to your family member and to give it to the friend who lives further away because you may end up further enabling that family member or person and making a lazy man lazier. <clears throat> Second Thessalonians 3, 9 to 11. Let me have someone read this for us. Nice and loud if you could. Now look at the middle of this in verse 10 here. He says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If he's not willing to work. Paul is not speaking to his ability, but his will. He doesn't say if a man has a broken leg and is unable to work, he shouldn't eat. He says, if a man is able and capable and unwilling to work, he shouldn't eat. So he's getting at a principle there. The Bible is concerned more about the desire and intention of the heart more than whether the man has a broken hand or not. Now, of course, we won't be able to sort of make these type of judgment calls, and I think we should make a judgment call here. We're not always able to do this coming out of Walmart or Target. And there's a guy to the side, and I look at him and say, man, is he willing to work or not? That, that's a different situation, right? We, we may give that man money. We may not. Um, you have to think through that, you know, what's most wise at that moment. But here, the principle is we're, we're thinking through those we have, we know a little better. Maybe it's a family member or a friend. We've been able to observe a pattern of life. Um, as he was with them and gave them this command. And it helps us to think through making this type of judgment call. What does it look like to help that friend or family member? Should we, should we not? <clears throat> and so there are other situations where we need to ap apply biblical wisdom so that we are acting wisely, again, with our resources. 
Now we can see the difference between what we ought to do and what we may do by comparison 1 John 3.17 and 2 Corinthians 8 um, and 9. So 1 John 3.17, it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, there's the opportunity, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? How can the love of God be in him? Now, First John assumes that there's some type of direct contact or knowledge of this brother in need and that this other brother, as he has this direct contact and knowledge, hardens his heart to him. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, well, how can you say that you have the love of God or the, the, the love of God is in you? He sees him, he hardens his heart, he has no pity on him. Now that, that's strong language. And he's not saying that you may do this, you may help that brother. He's saying that you must if you claim to be a Christian. And to fail to do so is sin. He's connecting not helping, whatever that looks like, not writing the check or giving him the 20 bucks, with a hardness of heart, right? So the focus isn't the, the, the check that's being given. He's tying the check being given back to something that's happening in the heart. And we're not always able to see how and, or if a man hardens his heart, but this still stands. He says if he hardens his heart against his brother, how can he say that uh, the love of God is in him? <clears throat> now that's one scenario. Let's look at another scenario. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth in order to raise money for the church in Jerusalem, which is about 800 miles away. Now, does he write the same way that John teaches here about caring for the needy of someone in the local church? No, he takes another approach. Instead, Paul writes in um, 2 Corinthians 8. This is verse 8 I'm reading. I say this, not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. And then, just one chapter over, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he actually leaves it open. Each one gives as he is determined within his heart. And so there's a, a different approach, and it's not contradictory. It's two different situations. And he's approaching, uh, John and Paul are approaching these two different situations differently. <clears throat> Again, moral proximity is not an excuse to ignore our neighbor in need. Remember Jesus' parable of the Good, Sam the good Samaritan. Instead, it, rec it recognizes that we have limitations, right? We have physical bodies, we have to our jobs, we have families, spouses, children, other responsibilities, and those responsibilities that the Lord has given us, right? <clears throat> and so we ought to tend to those things, but also uh, while, while not neglecting the others. <clears throat> One writer put it this way, if we have if, or if we, if we need, he says, 50 hours and every day to be obedient, we're saying more than the Bible says, and we're doing too much. 
He says, um, each 24-hour day is enough time, as Ephesians 2 says, to do those good works predestined for us beforehand. Now, when we think about how we can help our family, how we can help friends, how we can um, serve churches that are overseas or the suffering in the world, even of unbelievers, how we can seek to relieve those things, the Lord has, we have to remember that the Lord has made us finite, limited people right? We have a limited number of time, of strength, energy, right? We're not some marble character that can go on and on and on and on, right? We are finite. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to rest. Um, at times, depending on your personality, you just need to sit and think about, okay, how do I work through this in a way that's helpful and useful to this person? And so we have a lot of limitations, and we have to keep that in mind when we think about how we can serve one another and how we can serve the world, right? Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, the Bible says, but be wise and practical with how you go about doing those things. <clears throat> we don't want to be a bad steward um, of our day, of our time, right? If we, if we find ourselves doing too much, um, then we can be, that can actually be sin because we're saying that we're, we're exhausting ourselves and it can actually be tied to a lack of trust in the Lord. Um, if we're wasting our hours in the day, just sort of wasting them away on things, vain things, that can be sin as well because it's not entrusting ourselves to the Lord and uh, using what he's given us to serve and help others. So again, we, we don't want to fall on either side of those ditches on that road. And I think we can be helped not to do that by thinking through these biblical principles that uh, can hopefully give us some guidance. So, what does this look like? <clears throat> I had a chart for you. You probably see it in your handout, but I'll put it up here too. So trying to nail down exactly what this looks like can be impossible because, again, there are thousands of circumstances and nuances that have to be thought through as we try to think through this with wisdom. But if we could sketch out what scripture generally emphasizes for moral proximity, it might look something like this. You have this in your handout. And again, this isn't meant to be um, all inclusive. It's general principles laid out right from scripture. So we have the priority of family. Um, outside of that, we have the priority of local church. Outside of that, the priority of other Christians. Outside of that, the priority of all people in need, <clears throat> right? So we go from this sort of uh, proximity principle from here to here to here to here. <clears throat> and again, I'm sure we can think of exceptions where there's overlap and this category bleeds into that one and all the other stuff. That, that's fine, think through it. But um, that just gives a general idea of what that may look like. Okay, well, um, I'll pause there. Any questions before we go to the third, third principle? Thoughts or questions or concerns? Go ahead, well, Harrison. It's the, the moral proximity principle is kind of like uh, what you were hinting at there in a way. It was, um, <clears throat> is that, you know, we, we got to remember that just like Ephesians 2.10 says, how we, God has ordained us to, to you know, created us for works. Yeah. He's also ordained the times and the places in which we live. So 
Yep. You know, we gotta trust in the providence of God. Right. That, you know, we just do the best we can here. And he positions other people the best they can there. And then if we have an overflow, we can give to them. Yeah. Yep. I think that's exactly right. And I I mean when you think about that, you know, the the church in here in Orlando, let's say something's happening in Chicago somewhere. Um, and there's a big need that, you know, a lot of churches want to get, get involved in. Um, the church in Chicago has a unique responsibility according to their means. This doesn't mean that they, without discernment, ought to jump in and get involved in whatever this tragedy is or this thing, whatever. Um, but it means that they have to think through it. I think they have a higher uh, moral obligation by virtue of proximity to think through how they may be able to help. And even, so I'll finish this point and I'll, I'll make another. So the church in Chicago has a higher moral obligation than let's say the church here in Orlando to help that church in Chicago um, because they're closer. And even that principle though, um, that local church has to think through what resources has, has the Lord given to that church. Uh, there are some churches who the Lord has given the resources of funds you know maybe they have the are in a certain area where they have a lot of funds are able to help financially um, other churches maybe don't have that resource pool therefore they don't have that same obligation they can't the lord hasn't given it to them and so even individual local churches have to think through okay who do we have in our congregation what are some skill sets uh, that we have uh, what are some things experience that the lord has given certain people within that congregation to be able to help and it's never exactly the same for each church. And I think that's a part of um, why people can get really confused when we think about this sort of social justice principle and how and what that should look like is we assume that every church has the same resource pool and the same obligation. And that's not the case. Um, it's very um, diverse. It's, it's, there, there are so many nuances that we have to think through but we tend to sort of take one church and its ability, its reach, its resources, and just lay it wholesale over another church and say, well, how come you aren't doing what they're doing? And it burdens Christians and pastors and believers um, unnecessarily. And I think that's because we're not creating enough nuanced categories to think this through. Um, but the Lord does give us that freedom to do that, as we just saw, you know. So yeah, that's a great point, Harrison. Yeah. That's kind of why the, 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 uh, the Bible prescribes a Republican form of government mm. where you have representatives from each place and it builds out, builds out, builds out. Yeah. That way you're not doing heavy handed, uh, like, hey, this works in this area, let's do it all over the place. It's not going to work anymore. Right. And the people locally know the, the area better, they know the, the needs better. Yep. They can deal with it. Yeah. I think that's a, those are, I think, true and general principles that. Um, help a uh, society to, to function better and function properly. Yep. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to jump into principle number three, priority of need. So again, just to recap, we've been looking at three uh, principles that help us to think through how to serve uh, and help those who are suffering. First principle was love is the posture of the Christian. The second principle was the moral proximity principle. 
And the third principle is the priority of need principle. The priority of need. Now, all suffering, I think we would agree, is terrible, but not all categories of suffering are equal. Again, we're, we're making some distinctions and nuancing here a little bit. That means that not all categories of suffering bear the same weight. We need to have clarity on the relationship between suffering in this life, from poverty to crime, partiality, racism, disease, lack of clean water, so on and so on. We need to make a distinction and understand the relationship between those sufferings and the realities of heaven and hell. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul explains, well, what was this thing that was of first importance? And he lays that out. Now, sometimes we can look at First um, Corinthians 15 and look at verse, verse 3 and just sort of pause there. But I think if a lot of people went on to verse 4, it would answer a lot of their questions about the priority of the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Verse 4, that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures, was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, then appeared to Peter and to the twelve. So for Paul, the message of the cross is of first importance. Does that mean that we don't care for physical suffering? No, we shouldn't jump that far. Paul cared about physical suffering, and the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 tells us uh, what the heart of uh, the believer who wants to love God and love neighbor should be, right? Someone who has a transformed heart does care about physical suffering for the right reasons, I'll add. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is also uh, a parable that calls us to love our neighbor. Now, the nature of love is to do what is good for another person. Sometimes that looks like giving them $10. Sometimes it looks like not giving them $10. If my friend is a non-Christian, then the most loving thing I can do for him is what? Share the gospel with him. Proclaim to him the good news. Because the thing that we want to think about again here is um, food and money does relieve physical suffering. Uh, Proverbs uh, uh, has a, or maybe Ecclesiastes, there's a proverbial principle that says um, money answers um, all things, right? It's, he's not saying you should serve it or that it's the, the end all be all, but he says the principle is that it's a useful tool for many things, right? So we recognize that it's useful and helpful, but there is a greater priority. Right? There's a higher priority. We're thinking about the priority of need here. There's a higher need. And so no matter how many loving things um, I can and should do at times to help a person in physical suffering, if I don't warn them of eternal suffering, then how is that loving? Is that um, the greatest need and the most helpful way to relieve them in their suffering. One of the most essential ways we fulfill the great commandment is by fulfilling the great commission. 
preaching uh, as it was in the ministry of uh, Jesus and the apostles was the most important thing. And I say that without shame and without quibbling, it was the most important thing. Proclaiming the good news of salvation is of first importance. Not only importance, but of first importance. It was prioritized. Now, some would say that caring for the physical needs um, should be as equally as important as evangelism. That's a a big thing too um, right now. Well, you're doing this, this, and that. Um, You're saying that we should go out and evangelize and preach, but what about you know, caring for their, their physical needs. You can't do this unless you do that. A lot of people, you know, it's, it's very popular right now. <clears throat> others, see doing, uh, others see evangelism as doing social justice. Um, sort of this principle of share the gospel, use words if necessary. But scripture shows us that evangelism is not simply doing good things. It is proclaiming or speaking a message and it's the message of the gospel. Still, some will put caring for physical needs against evangelism as if we have to choose between the two. Uh, That approach that says either be someone who does something or be someone who just preaches at people, right? They sort of create those two two categories. And some may say, well, we, we, we don't have to choose. We do both. We should do both, and I I do agree with that, but at times, you will have to choose. There are times where we can do both, and we should do both, uh, prioritizing one over the other, but there are times where you you have to make a choice. Um, Some situations you come into, and you, in that moment, you can either uh, give this, you know, person this, this money, or you can just share the gospel with them Um, and share the good news with them. There are times where we will have to choose one or the other. And you should choose, prioritize sharing the gospel with them. You should prioritize sharing the good news with them. Um, Oftentimes, we do have opportunities to to do both, to help with the physical need and share the gospel. But in those times where you don't have um, the ability to do both, um, you should do one over the other. And all of this, always prioritizing sharing the gospel. As followers of Christ, we should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. And let's not assume that, even in thinking about this, that only social actions um, produces social change and that the gospel doesn't. Because that's another idea as well. But actually, the gospel rightly proclaimed has been used by God to bring the greatest social change in this world. And there are stories over and over and over and over where you see this, and you also see it in biblical, in in the Bible as well. But just one one story here, Max Stills, I think that's how you say it, or maybe Stiles, he was a pastor in Iraq. He talked about this sort of idea um, and told this this story, because he saw this firsthand. And he says, When our missionary friend Mike McComb tried to introduce protein into the diets of a largely illiterate Guatemalan farmers, it was a masterful combination of expertise, training, and strategy. 
He started his work towards the end of the murderous Civil War. We lived there with him off and on over a course of six years, working in the malnutrition um, clinic of the village. During the time, Mike also faithfully shared the gospel. But Mike noticed it was the gospel that allowed protein to get into the people. It's weird, how, how did that happen? When the gospel was understood and accepted in villages, men stopped getting drunk and beating their wives. And they attended church. They started to attend to their crops and their children's education. Thomas, the local mayor, told me that it was only when the gospel came to these Guatemalans that real change happened. Mike says that the preaching of the gospel did more to eliminate hunger than fish farms or crop rotations ever did. We must never forget that the gospel brings more long-term social good than any aid program ever developed. Now he's, I, mean, I think that's a great, a great story. And he's um, trying to get at, not that this is always the case, but to make a point that rules can only do so much in a society to affect and make good citizens. Right? Something has to happen on a heart level so that the, the rules, those things put into place, are obeyed if there um, are good, good rules joyfully, and that those rules aren't the things that's um, causing or root, the, the root of the obedience, but something greater than just the rule. Something is happening in the heart of a man in a society um, when the gospel penetrates his heart, rather takes the old heart and gives him a new heart, to where he starts caring about how he spends his money. And so the rule is there, great, it's helpful, but there's a, 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 a deeper, um, lasting principle where he says, oh, this money is given to me by the Lord. He gives me strength and energy to work. How do I spend this wisely? So his, his faculties start changing. How he thinks about his relationship with his wife and his kids starts changing. He could go to a class, and maybe at times he should go to a class that helps him to not, I don't know, abuse his spouse. Um, but when the gospel penetrates the heart, it changes the center of the being of the man, and not just, and it doesn't just tie his hands behind his back so he can't beat his wife. It actually loses his hands because it changes his, his heart. And when his heart is changed, his faculties start doing different things. And so something deeper and more penetrating is happening to the man when the gospel penetrates him. And when the spirit is indwelling him, he's, he's different. He's actually a new creature. Um, and that, that's not to say that uh, rules and laws aren't useful. They are very useful, um, but they're not, uh, they, they can only go so far in their helps, right? Go ahead. Right.
not a biblical idea. Yeah. Because social justice says that the system is going to somehow effect the change to bring justice into the world. But the system is the system is in the lap of the devil. That's what the Bible mm. Paul says. This whole world is in the lap of the enemy. Yeah. So how a system that is in the lap of the devil is able to act justly? It can't. So the church has to be careful, in my humble opinion, has to be careful not to fall into the trap of following a political scheme that puts everything yeah. the opposite. It reverses it. Yeah. It reverses it. Because the change has to come from the inside. What you just said has to come in the heart of the man. Yeah. Remember um, uh, Jeremiah 17, 6. It says, the, the heart of the man, or the heart of people is desperately wicked. Yep. Who's going to know? Yeah. So we're expecting to make change from the societal. The society to make change and cause justice, it'll never be. Because the, the, the premise... The, the system is corrupt by sin, by sin, and how can sinful people act justly? Yeah. Only people that have been regenerated with the gener regeneration of Christ, that has the Holy Spirit, we can do justice. And even us, as sinful people, we struggle sometimes oh, yeah. to, act, to act justly. Absolutely, right? yeah. So how can yep. we expect the system, <clears throat> the social justice, to bring justice to this world? It's impossible. Yeah. Yep. So the church has to be careful not to fall into the political terms that the society is putting on us. Yeah. Because uh, I, I came from another country and as a, in, from Nicaragua, and I saw the same thing. This is nothing new. Yeah. They had a different term for that. It was the the gospel of liberation. Mm. In, you know, in Latin America, we were you know they suppressed by dictators and all that. Right. And they came up with this so-called gospel of liberation, which was nothing more than you know, trying to effect political change, mm. you know, through the political means. Yeah, for the same principles, yeah. And it, it led a whole bunch of churches where I grew up into the wrong way, into becoming mm. a political thing. But God didn't call us to be political. The Lord called us to preach the gospel, to meet need, to change a heart, and to change us through the, through the Holy Spirit, not Amen. through political yeah. action. Amen. Well said. Well said. Absolutely. Right, let's go Harrison, and then I saw a hand over here. Anybody? Okay, we'll do Harrison, and then we'll go to Kyle. This, uh, it, it's actually, um, uh, it's certainly, it, it proves the point well in that social justice, like the lunacy of um, the Smithsonian ad for the uh, African-American heritage section or whatever it was, okay. where they said, like, um, you know, hard work and rational thinking and all that stuff, those are products of whiteness, mm. you know, and it, it just a, a ridiculous yeah. plaque, and it's in the Smithsonian. And, Sad. Uh, but <coughs> that goes to show how it is the gospel that changes something. Yeah. Because when... Uh, like St. Patrick went to Ireland, they're all cannibals. There are a lot of cannibals and stuff. And I mean, right. The Gauls and all these, the, the Vikings, the, the Visigoths, all the wretched, wretched, evil people. You can't get more wicked than the Vikings. They would they would tear out people's intestines and tie them around the tree while they were still alive. You can't get more wicked than these guys. Yeah. 
and they're all changed by the power of the gospel mm. so much so that these other unregenerate men think that well these good qualities are products of white men because Europe's all white predominantly white so oh well it's just a product of that no it's the gospel that changes these people yeah. and it's generations of the gospel that changes these people yeah Yep. You know, it's just, it's it's a, a picture of you know proving the fact, but they're blind and they don't yeah. they don't see. Yep. So what you were saying earlier about uh, how um, the gospel transforms a lot of these cultures and how that's really at the heart of like poverty alleviation. Yeah. I was literally reading something last week and came across this ministry. Um, Truth Center Transformation. Okay. And that's the whole idea. And they, I think the number now is like a thousand villages. Wow. That have basically come out of poverty. And the thrust is not throwing more money at them or doing, like you said, fish, you know, all these different things, which, you know, which can be helpful. Right. But the heart of it was helping the church, helping the people to understand the gospel, what it means, living it out, and then how that has ramifications on every area of life, right? And then it goes to, you know, simple techniques with farming, keeping up with crops, other things. Yeah. It was funny, they did, um, the government, they didn't, in the book they didn't say uh, what, what country it was, but the government had to do two studies because they were curious why these impoverished uh, villages were coming out of poverty. Yeah. And then the answer was, well, these people were reading the Bible and applying it, right? It was like, right. well, no, okay, that's video, so <laughs> right. let's send another team of PhD students to go and survey and figure out what's going yeah. on. And yeah. they came up with the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was really interesting that what you were saying. You know, just reading that recently. Yeah. Just, you know, that's seeing, good. Yeah. You know, similar con- confirming results. You know, because people just think in in almost like narrow terms and right. don't realize like, hey, no, it's it's inwardly what that affects literally everything outwardly over time. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And that's so important to keep in mind because we are, as we all know, we're not blind to this reality, but we're living in a time where everything else except what's most important is being emphasized as the the cause and root of what man needs most right he needs this thing most he needs to have a sort of positive upbringing most he needs to have better wealth for his education most he needs to have you know these aids most and again those things can be helpful and at times they can be actually harmful but the thing that man needs most is always ever the gospel Right? And the Bible tells us this, but we're living in a time where because of the sort of influence and the narrative and the culture, people are now rethinking, well, is that what the Bible is saying or is it saying this? And introducing other things and reinterpreting scripture to now fit a narrative. But the Bible is clear on that and it is the true and lasting word. It does not change, right? Our philosophies, our ideologies, we fail, fade to grass, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it'll be this at the end that will show itself to be true. So continue to preach the word, continue to hold to God's word. And I'll just sort of end a little discussion here or on this idea with this before I close. Um, First Thessalonians 2.13 says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, and this is the point, which is at work in you, believers. The word of God is at work in the Christian, in the believer, which is why uh, his or her life 
drastically changes, which is why they fight against sin, which is why these societies and cultures and people groups and even these indigenous areas um, become um, a completely transformed society. The word is at work in them. And if you take away the word, the spirit, out of the heart of the man, then you're left with a man who may, be, be, who may become a little more moral, but his core processor hasn't been changed. Therefore, he's still going to glitch and sin and sin in horrific ways. So again, the gospel is the, the answer to this. Okay, so in closing here, how does thinking about all of this help us to um, serve those who are suffering well and help us to suffer well? Well, for those who are suffering, it reminds us of the importance of having an eternal perspective. We talked about this um, in our class before, thinking about the role of heaven and hell, but knowing our greatest need has to be taken care of or has been taken care of in Christ helps us to endure any other form of suffering because ultimately, whatever sufferings we do endure, it's only ever temporary. Uh, not, not only is it temporary because these things just tend to come in seasons and only periods of time, but even if death is the end of your suffering, it was still temporary and we get our greatest joy, right? So having an eternal perspective help, helps us to suffer well now. Um, Romans 8, Paul says, for I consider our present suffering, sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us, right? So he has a temporal view, he has an eternal view, and he's interpreting the temporary, seeing the temporary in light of the eternal. And he comes to the conclusion that this isn't even worth comparing. And Paul went through physically in his suffering more than any of us in this room, I'm sure. Um, but he has, a, he has a comparative view, and he says one is infinitely greater than the other. So let that be a help to you when, when you are suffering. Pray that the Lord would um, end it encourage your heart that he would give you grace to suffer through it but also read the scripture read the psalms be reminded that there is something greater coming and if the greatest thing that we have is only on this earth then we are of all people most to be pitied but if there's something greater which comes through the resurrected lord then we have a great hope in the age to come and let that encourage you in your suffering second for those who are helping someone who is suffering it reminds us that as we care for others, love motivates us to care for the physical sufferings of others, but not to forget the eternal is more important than the temporal. So same principle, just reverse. So as we think about what it means to love our neighbor, we remember that the most loving thing we can do is to tell them the gospel. If the person suffering is not a Christian, we pray that God would give them saving faith through the gospel. If the person is a Christian, we pray that God would preserve their faith through the same gospel. All right, so the believer and the unbeliever both need the gospel, and the Spirit works through the proclaimed word. Okay? So any other uh, closing thoughts before, we, before I pray? Harrison?
try to do to is ask the waitress if there's or waiter if there's anything I pray for them. Okay. And then uh, they'll sometimes they'll bring up like weightier matters, but sometimes it's kind of Yeah. But um, but regardless of, of the matter, if it's demonstrable that they're not Christian, then um, the I, I do eventually pray when when I pray for them. I do eventually pray for the, their their request. Right. Something like there, but the first and foremost, I pray that they'll have their eyes open to the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just living that out. You know? Yeah. It's just, yeah. So, yeah. Know. That's a good good approach and thinking through how you know, all of us can consider um, as we have on our minds people's greater or greatest priority um, what that looks like for us individually. Um, I had a friend I know that um, he, uh, he used to have, actually I think it was Lloyd here maybe, um, he would carry a, a little bag of things for the person on the, on the corner um, instead of always giving them cash and sort of being uncertain with how they use it he was just sort of thinking through another approach. So he would have like a snack, um, a track, um, and then like I think like some type of resource card for places where you can go to find help, aid, a job, and resources. And he would have the kids sort of hand out to the guy on the corner. Um, that's just one idea and one approach. But you know, we, we all should give thought to what that looks like for us um, as we keep the gospel um, priority in all things. Um, and as we seek to serve our families, our friends, our local church, and the world, um, let's seek to do it with biblical wisdom. The Bible does speak to this, and it speaks to it pretty, pretty clearly. And so um, we'll, we'll pursue that. And I'll pray for us to that end. Okay? All right. Lord, we give you thanks for your word again. Um, help us to... Hold your word as what it truly is, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, we thank you that you have allowed us to be alive and born in a time such as this so that we uh, could be in our time, in this uh, short span that we have, a salt and light to the world. Lord, um, help us to be uh, bold in our uh, resolve to have the word and the gospel as the priority in our, on our words on our lips and our ministries to our family and friends. Give us wisdom, Lord, I pray, with our resources, our time, our energy, our resources, those things you give to us that we ought to be good stewards of. Help us to be wise and to think through how to use those things to give you the maximum amount of glory. And uh, may you be pleased to give us grace, Lord, to, to that end. Uh, bless us now as we go into the sanctuary to hear uh, the word preached, the word prayed, the word sang. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, ready and stir our affections, uh, that we would give thought to the God before whom we come as a congregation, a fellowship of believers together. And may you glorify yourself and make us to um, squeeze out of this time um, all that you intend for us through your divine grace, through the means of grace. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.